I think you probably know the details of your birth more than any other person on earth, right? Like most of us don't know the nitty gritty of it's, how we were conceived. It's pretty weird watching yourself be born. <laughs> is it? Yes. This is Louise Brown being interviewed by CBS News in 2018. Louise was famous before she was even born. Cameras were there the moment she arrived. When you were a child, did you feel like you had to prove that you were normal? Um, I didn't feel like I had to prove it, but I know at one point when I was um, in the pram, mum took me to a local bakery and they said, oh, is this the test you, baby? And mum said, yeah. And they said, um, oh, she's normal. And mum said, well, what did you expect her to have two heads? Louise was the first human ever born from in vitro fertilization, or IVF. This was back in the late 70s. Louise's mother had gotten pregnant after her doctor successfully implanted an embryo in her uterus. Nothing like it had been done before, and people were afraid. Afraid that the babies wouldn't be born healthy. Afraid that scientists were playing God. Afraid that it would threaten family as we knew it. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On July 25th, 1978, 44 years ago this week, Louise Brown showed the world a baby could be made in a whole new way. Since then, it's estimated that over 8 million babies have been born using IVF. Today on the show, we'll look at how IVF went from being feared to being mainstream to helping people build new types of families. We'll deliver this bundle of joy after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Louise's mother was named Leslie. Leslie grew up in a working-class family in Bristol, England, in the 50s and 60s. She was 14 when she dropped out of high school. Then she met John Brown. They became a couple when she was 16. They married at 19, and she immediately began trying to get pregnant. This is Margaret Marsh. She's a history professor at Rutgers University, specializing in the history of infertility and reproductive medicine. She says Leslie and John tried to have a baby, but Leslie couldn't get pregnant. So they kept trying, and it kept not working. 
for nine whole years. She went from doctor to doctor with no success. She had blocked fallopian tubes and she was operated on, but she could not get pregnant. John already had two kids from a previous marriage, which weighed on Leslie. She felt something was wrong with her. She went in and out of periods of severe depression. It put a strain on her marriage. You don't feel normal, she later told the Daily Mail. You feel you're not a real woman. At one point, she told her husband, go and find a proper wife. Finally, in 1976, Leslie went to a gynecologist named Patrick Steptoe. He and his colleagues were developing a technique to help couples conceive. They were planning to remove an egg from the ovaries and fertilize it with sperm in a Petri dish. They'd wait a couple of days for the embryo to develop and then place it inside the uterus. The procedure was still experimental, but Leslie didn't care. She said, I may have been told, but none of this mattered to me. All I heard was, uh, we're doing this work and we might be able to help you get pregnant. <laughs> uh, she said, you know, she said, I, I didn't care. Leslie agreed to the procedure and started her first attempt at IVF. And she got lucky. Leslie Brown got pregnant. First try, she got pregnant. Leslie was ecstatic, but she was also afraid. Would she be able to carry the baby to term? Would the baby be born healthy? The 40-week wait began. There were still huge concerns about IVF in the 1970s. There had been pushback from religious groups, especially the Catholic Church, which holds that life begins at conception. They didn't like the idea of tossing out unused embryos. Many scientists and ethicists were also skeptical. The term slippery slope came up a lot. Some feared that IVF could lead to birth defects and human clones. Others worried that people could start to screen for disorders, that parents would someday be able to select for desirable genes. And scientists who were researching the technology were stigmatized. In 1973, a doctor at Columbia University tried to fertilize the egg of a woman who was struggling to get pregnant, but he never informed his department about his plans, which was a problem. Someone found out that he was attempting to fertilize an egg, and the chair of his department destroyed the contents of that test tube. The department chair said the doctor should have sought permission first, and that it was too soon to be testing IVF on humans. The prospective parents were devastated. There was resistance in Britain, too. Leslie's doctor, Patrick Steptoe, and his collaborator, Robert Edwards, were some of just a few researchers in the world working on the technique. And they were treated as outsiders in the medical community. At one point, Margaret says Edwards was confronted by one of the grandfathers of genetics himself, James Watson, the guy famous for discovering DNA. He didn't like where the tech was headed. Robert Edwards had quite the dust-up at a 1971 conference that was on reproductive technology. And Watson had said, it's going to be horrible. We're going to end up with a lot of mistakes. In other words, 
you are going to do IVF and the babies are going to be born with significant disabilities. All this opposition meant very little public funding for research. Few were willing to wade into such controversial territory. But Edwards and Steptoe were undeterred. A British medical team said today it hopes to create the world's first test tube baby by the end of this year. They worked for almost a decade without much success. In that time, they tried the procedure on about 280 women. None resulted in a successful pregnancy. But their luck took a turn with Leslie and John Brown. Margaret says Leslie had no idea she was the first to get pregnant using IVF until she read about herself in the press. After she became pregnant and the word got out, her life was a living hell because she was hounded by the media. It was the story of the year. The press camped outside of her home. Leslie was forced to find another place to live. She went to stay with relatives, but the media found her there. So she went to stay with a relative of one of her doctors, but the media found her there too. Finally, Steptoe admitted her to a hospital under an assumed name. But the press found out. They camped out under her window. They posed as maintenance men to try to get into her room. Somebody even pulled a fire alarm once to see if they could get everybody to evacuate to try to catch her as she was leaving her room. It was very stressful for her. Then, in the summer of 1978, the moment the world had been waiting for finally arrived. Doctors prepped Leslie for a C-section. It was time for her to meet her baby. On July the 25th, at around 11 o'clock at night, they wheeled her in for a cesarean section. And there's a film crew there. You are about to see a historic birth following in vitro fertilization. Steptoe held Leslie's hand. He said a silent prayer, checked the baby's heartbeat. Then the C-section began. The hand has now been inserted below the baby's head in order to deliver it through the letterbox incision. A good, healthy cry. There was a lot of relief that she was healthy, normal, and beautiful. This cry of the baby is excellent because it means the lungs are being very well expanded. Lovely pink color. Plenty of fat underneath the skin. Good, mature baby. And after that, of course, the world went crazy. The world's first test tube baby was born here in Britain last night. A pink, healthy baby girl who began life in a test tube. The homecoming of Louise Brown, the test tube baby. Her mother dashing into the house with a coat over her head and the baby quickly following. Surely no baby in the world can ever have had a homecoming quite like this one. Leslie and John named their baby girl Louise. They let Leslie's doctors choose her middle name, 
joy. And for the most part, the media, Margaret says, fell in love. I do a lecture on this sometimes, and I have this one slide where I have the magazine covers from all over the world about Louise Brown's birth, Louise Brown's birth, Louise Brown's birth, the lovely Louise. And it was a media sensation because this was the first test tube baby. Headlines gushed over Louise. Little Miss Perfect wrote one. The whole world in her hands, said another. Articles written about the Browns emphasized their respectability. The Daily Mail, a British tabloid, had paid the Browns more than 300,000 pounds for exclusive rights to their story. It described Leslie and John as suitable and deserving parents. Aligning IVF with traditional family values eventually helped ease it into the mainstream. Couples started reaching out to the Browns, expressing how the birth of Louise gave them new hope for their own chance at a family. But the Browns also had to contend with some backlash. When Louise grew up, she wrote about some of the negative things people said about her, hurtful things. She said people thought she wasn't fully human, that she must have superhuman powers, the ability to move objects with her mind. Some even said she had no soul. And then they got terrible things like they got a package that had a plastic fetus and a broken test tube and fake blood splattered all over everything. So it wasn't all wonderful for them after the birth. We reached out to Louise, but she didn't respond. In the months and years that followed Louise's birth, physicians around the world raced to open their own IVF clinics. But there was opposition. And in the U.S., it was especially fierce. There was a proposal to open the first American IVF clinic in Virginia in the late 70s. And local anti-abortion activists were mounting a series of attacks. The proposal has brought national attention to Norfolk. Today, all three television networks were filming at the hospital. It has also brought opposition from the Catholic Church, from the Virginia Society for Human Life, whose president, Charles Dean, claims the clinic will increase the number of abortions. Anti-abortion activist Charles Dean said IVF would involve flushing imperfect babies down a laboratory sink, akin to an abortion. He said... I feel it's a tragedy and a disgrace. Dean and others were concerned about unused embryos. Typically with IVF, there's the potential for not just one, but several embryos to be made. Doctors do this to improve the chances of a successful pregnancy. The extra embryos are usually frozen. When people decide not to use them, they're sometimes donated or otherwise discarded. Dean rallied dozens of other anti-abortion demonstrators. They marched, carried signs. One read, unnatural creation, who should play God? All this opposition forced the clinic to delay its opening. Virginia Society for Human Life has threatened to take the hospital to court. The Virginia anti-abortion group also had powerful allies in Congress. And from Washington, where Utah Senator Orrin Hatch says there are still too many unanswered religious, ethical, moral, and legal questions about in vitro fertilization. The project ought to be delayed. It's a brand new situation. People don't understand it. There are many, many religious difficulties with it, moral, ethical difficulties with it. Despite the pushback, 
the clinic finally opened in March of 1980. Today, in the U.S., there are nearly 500 fertility clinics, and tens of thousands of babies are born using reproductive technologies each year. It's become a blessing for families who struggle to or can't conceive. But for many, it's a draining and difficult journey. I knew it was going to be intense. I didn't know how intense. And I think if I had known just how intense it was going to be, I don't know if I would have actually been ready for it. One family's IVF story after the break. Before the break, we learned about the decades-long attempt to create a human embryo outside the body and implant it in a person's uterus. Despite serious pushback, IVF expanded quickly in the United States. Suddenly, single parents, queer couples, people struggling to get pregnant, they had new choices for building a family. But this new opportunity also brought a whole new set of considerations. Considerations that one Brooklyn couple, Anna Krieger and Rosie Guerin, grappled with recently when they were figuring out how to start a family. Spoiler alert, they now have twins. Yeah, this is Remy. (laughs) Oh my gosh, hello Remy. Remy, his sister is, I think, going to fall asleep and he is going to maybe make some baby noises. I hope not too much. That was Rosie with a special appearance from baby Remy. Rosie's an executive producer at Gimlet Media, which puts out this show. Her wife, Anna, is a career coach who grew up knowing she wanted to have kids. For me growing up, I always envisioned myself as a parent and I would draw these pictures of me at the time with my future husband and my five children. And (laughs) little did I know that years later I would come out as queer and, you know, and then we'd be family planning in maybe a different way than I anticipated. Anna and Rosie got married in 2019. Soon after, they started seriously talking about having kids and realized there was a lot to consider. Like, who would carry the baby? Who would contribute the egg? They talked about the race of their future baby. Anna is white, Rosie is black. Rosie's thinking was shaped by her own family history. I'm adopted, and I have a younger brother who's also adopted. We are both Black. Our parents are white. So I had not done a lot of processing and reckoning around what that meant for sort of my relationship with race, my relationship with being, you know, a a child that was placed and then having children of my own. So that was really a tough kind of knot to unravel for me. Rosie and Anna talked about what it meant to have children that shared both their physical traits, how important it was to have a child biologically related to them. I've thought a lot about what it means to be biologically connected and what it means to birth children. But a huge exercise for me personally throughout this process has been really scratching it at that and, and not taking that on its face they decided Anna would be the one to carry, using her eggs. And they started searching for a sperm donor. 
it felt like dating sites where you pay up to get access to more information. It was totally wild. It was, yeah, it was like a dating site meets Amazon plus like the consequential biological decision making for your future children for the rest of their lives. Um, It was really intense, but there was still a virtual shopping cart. They chose a black sperm donor. Physically, Rosie would be represented too. The way we talked about it was when we walk down the street, we want people to see us as a family. And there's so many components at play. And it did feel important that if Rosie's alone with the kids, we wanted the kids to, at least on some level, reflect her as well. They didn't try IVF right off the bat. They started with a procedure called IUI, intrauterine insemination, basically where the sperm is placed directly into the uterus. The couple was hopeful. They tried a couple times, but when it didn't work out, they were devastated. Rosie proposed using IVF, but Anna had her reservations. From the beginning, I had said, I really, really don't want to do IVF. To start IVF, you have to take drugs to help the ovaries produce as many eggs as possible. Drugs that can have side effects and take an emotional toll. There's also a higher chance of having multiple births, which also carries risk. Plus, it's pricey, around $20,000 per cycle. Thankfully, Anna and Rosie found that their insurance would cover the cost. So they decided to give it a shot. Anna was nervous. I was really scared, you know, like, oh, wow, will will it work? But also how will I respond to this? And having a lot of hormones pumped into my system in that way and having to go through all of the medications and everything, there's a lot of unpredictability and uncertainty. It was hard on Anna and it was hard on Rosie too. The process of going through this was an exercise in both trying to extinguish hope, not allow yourself to go there because statistically it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. The couple was lucky. Their first round of IVF produced several viable embryos. Then came time for the transfer, placing the embryo inside the uterus, seeing if it implants. The first transfer didn't work. Two months later, they tried again. Again, it didn't take. But then, well, you know what they say about third times. I was starting to have some symptoms pretty early on. I thought, well, let's just do a test. And we both ran into the bathroom and I took the test. And then we're looking at it and we start to see a line appear. And then Rosie started screaming. And she's like, oh my God. Is that a faint line? Is that a faint line? (laughs) Their doctor confirmed it. Anna was pregnant. And on December 3rd, 2021, Anna and Rosie welcomed twins. Embryo one became our son, uh, Remy, and embryo (laughs) two became our daughter, Noah. I don't have kids of my own, but I've heard that when you do, it's like unlocking a depth of love you didn't know was possible. When Rosie and Anna met their children for the first time, they felt that love. Everything they had gone through, 
all the fertility treatments, the failed attempts, the difficult questions, it had all led to these two little lives. Now you have your kids, you've started your family. Thinking about where you are now, if you could go back to talk to yourselves in the middle of that process, what would you say to yourself? I would probably describe to myself the budding personalities of these incredible, incredible children because it's so theoretical. It's it's sort of a hazy picture. And now we have our kids and they're so great. They're such a good hang. Like they're really fun and interesting and delightful people. If I could go back and, and talk to my former self and to Rosie, I would say that it's all going to be worth it. And uh, here we are. And it can't have been that bleak because we're considering doing it again sometime. So, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> Rosie might want to carry. And I've said to her, you know, if she wants to go through it, I'm, I'm all for it. And... I'm not sure I'm brave enough, but I really love babies. <laughs> <laughs> for now, they're just trying to get enough sleep. I think about how far we've come since Leslie Brown gave birth to Louise in the 70s, how much more normalized IVF is, and the opportunities it's opened up for people wanting to build families. But the future of IVF isn't clear, not since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Some anti-abortion groups consider all embryos to be human beings. And while some of these groups have reportedly stated they aren't focusing on IVF, Fertility doctors, and frankly, a lot of other people, are worried about new anti-abortion laws. What happens to unused embryos? Could you be punished for destroying them? Would you have to pay to store them indefinitely? Give them up for adoption? Would it mean making fewer embryos from the get-go? Limiting people's reproductive choices, it would be a huge step back. A step back from the strides we've made in science, a step back from the strides we've made as a society and expanding how we think about family and expanding our possibilities for love. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Sarah Craig. Next week, we're talking pot, cannabis, weed, and why you likely grew up with some rather dramatic messages about it. You do weed, you're going to be on heroin. It was literally just like that. Weed also led to prostitution, not graduating school, your brain falling apart, you name it. The rest of our team are associate producers Ramoy Phillip and Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Annie Gilbertson, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. 
The executive producer at CSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Robin Morantz-Hennig, Barbara Katz-Rothman, Katie Hassan, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I always say that by our second or third date, I had decided I was done dating and Rosie was the one. And I liked to try to convince Rosie that that was the case. And, and that I- freaked me out. But seven <laughs> years later, here we are. Yeah.